0: to you. Leviticus chapter twenty six this evening. Genesis to Revelation. Finishing the book of Leviticus tonight. By way of reminder, the theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness, the holiness of God, and because our God Is holy. In order for us to properly represent him in the world, we have to be holy too. The problem is, there's a lot of man-made definitions of holiness out there that mostly have to do with um, outward appearance. And you know, basically, if you're going to create God, uh, an image of God or an idea of God, uh, we create them after our own image, and and uh, we end up making a God that is very much like us. And so anybody that isn't like us, you know, they're, they're uh, all of our standards for man-made standards for God and walking with Him and obedience to Him end up looking very much like us. But Jesus is the definition of holiness, and, and we want to be a holy people. In, in chapter 26, the word if is used 32 times, and that's very interesting to us, I think, because if is a choice word. And uh, in this chapter, the Lord is emphasizing the importance of the choices that we make uh, as His children. And our choices, of course, ultimately determine our directions and our destinations in life. They determine the quality of our life, uh, this side of heaven, and they certainly determine the destination of our lives for eternity. So it's absolutely impossible for anyone to overstate the importance of decision-making in a human life, especially decision-making that has to do with uh, God. And so so with so much riding upon our decisions, we can ask ourselves and wonder, is there a foolproof way for knowing that I'm always making a right decision in life? And the answer is, yes, there is. And God Himself gives it to us there in verse 3. The foolproof way is to walk in God's statutes, to keep His commandments and to perform them. And so I need to ask myself, what does God's Word tell me to do in this situation in my life, and then do it, and it puts me in a safe and blessed place in life. There's a a, a verse in Isaiah, uh, chapter 35, verse 8, that I'm very, very fond of, maybe for a peculiar reason. But God describes uh, obedience to His Word as putting us on a road. It puts us on a path. The Bible says that, uh, you know, um, well, this is a lot of things, doesn't it? And it just flew out of my mind. But, uh, so you fill in the blank on it. But it, but it, it really does, it, the, it, it puts us on a path. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is, is the way uh, of death. And so decisions put us on paths, and the decision to obey God puts us on a path that is blessed. It's called the path of holiness. And Isaiah, God spoke through Isaiah and and put it this way, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others, whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. And the reason I like that verse, and it's such an encouragement to me, is it says that you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to enjoy the greatest life that a human being can. And enjoy. It doesn't have anything to do with our SAT scores or our doors that were opened up to us because of opportunities that our family present to us or a lack of those doors or anything. That a blessed life, as God defines it, is found on a, in a, on a path of simple obedience to His Word. It puts us on a safe path and it puts us on a blessed path. Now, the Lord does something equally Uh, uh, wonderful here in this chapter because he not only gives his people clear instruction concerning right and wrong and, and good and bad but he also warns them of the consequences of doing wrong and as a result the children of Israel would then be responsible for the choices that they made because going into their relationship with God, they knew the definitions of right and wrong and they knew the the blessings of obedience and the consequences of of disobedience. And so that was something that was clear to them that uh, the importance of making good godly decisions and uh, and that there are consequences uh, that follow very, very hard uh, behind the decisions that we make. And I think it's important today, given the culture that we live in, especially in terms of popular entertainment and the, and the pop culture, where almost always the culture is encouraging rebellion against God's word. And that would be bad enough. But what they almost never show is the consequences of disobedience to God's word, and that's just criminal because it gives people the idea that I can rebel against God's word, and there are no consequences to it. But there are consequences to it, and God is loves us enough as people to tell us uh, both of those things. Here's right, and here's wrong. Here's all the blessings that are in the path of obedience, and and then what happens if you you disobey, and uh, and so He lays it out, and He's a Because He's a loving Father and He's a clear communicator to us. And so as a result, as we look at chapter 26 and 27, they're really just a perfect conclusion to a book that's filled with God's holy commandments And his laws. So the Lord, as He's laid out all of these laws in the book of Leviticus, He just wraps it up now and and answers the question of the person who might ask, Well, does it really matter if we obey these commandments or not? And the Lord answers with a very, very loud and resounding yes. It matters a lot whether we obey or disobey His word. With that introduction, let's get into chapter 26. He said, you shall not make idols for yourselves, either a carved image or a sacred pillar, Uh, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. So he prohibits all idolatry. Idolatry is essentially the worship of any created thing. Now today, we we think we live in a very sophisticated culture and uh but you know, if the Lord tarries a hundred years and the world looks like the jetsons, they'll uh, come, sorry, all my illustrations they come from sad places, but anyway, they're all dated. I don't know any new ones, so you're going to have to forgive me. Six people understood it. this is so sad, lord, but uh, I hope they're in reruns, but you know astro really it, there's a, a, the, but it, you you have. Um, we look and say, well, we're so sophisticated, we don't fall down in front of stones and rocks and carved images, and so we don't engage in idolatry. But to worship power, to worship... Money, to worship a vehicle. Per- what a person worships in life is the master passion of their life. It is what, when you wake up in the morning, what do you think about? Where does your money go, your discretionary money? Where does your discretionary time go, my time? That's how we identify who, you know, who is the real practical God in our lives. And so it's the worship of any created thing having the, the supreme uh, master passion of our life. So it's the worship of any created thing the only one that isn't created is the Lord. And, uh, and so uh, he, there's this great divide between the two camps. And so he just is basically telling them, just worship me. And he gives them the reason there, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, you already have a God. You don't need any other gods. And uh, you already have the best God that you can possibly have. And uh, there isn't any idol that can be greater than the God that we serve. And so it would be foolish to, um, you know, trade the, you know, indescribable something that in everything that our God is for some, you know, indescribable nothing, which is what an idol is. He goes on and talks about the importance of keeping the Sabbath. You shall keep my Sabbaths. And then thirdly, he exhorts them to reverence his sanctuary. And that, and that spoke of the tabernacle at this point in time later at the temple. And basically what he's saying is, <clears throat> is that the, the temple or the tabernacle was a holy place and he wanted his people to be a holy people that would approach him uh, there. And so that's the way that they could reverence or respect his uh, his his tabernacle would be to show up at that holy tabernacle, holy temple, uh, with a holy uh, life. Then he starts to lay out uh, all of these blessings that are attached to obedience to his uh, commandments. And so he said again uh, in, in in verse um, uh, in verse uh, two, three actually it is I was, I've written over the three. If you walk in my commandments and keep if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them Then so if is that choice word, and then here is this word then, the blessing that he promises to follow it with, then I will give you rain in its season, and the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. So in Canaan and in the promised land, they didn't have a river like Egypt did where they could water their crops through irrigation. It's an arid part of the world, uh, comparatively speaking, a Mediterranean climate. So they depended upon God to give them the early and the latter rains that were necessary for their crops to be watered. And they were u- u- unique in, um, in, in, compared to a lot of the nations that surround them. No Tigris-Euphrates River, no, nothing like that. You think, well, they have the Jordan River, and you go to, you go to Israel and take a trip there, and one of the days we part of the day we would drive down along the Jordan River um, to uh, down to the south, and everybody's looking for the Jordan River. It's not even a creek. I mean, we think, wow, the Jordan, wow, it's gigantic. Well, when it could rain and, and flood down, and, and God separated it for Joshua, and also it could be wide in certain spots, but it wouldn't even count as a creek in California. And so they they really needed the water. And so God was basically saying, you obey me. I'm going to take care of your water issue. Now, those of you who are farmers in the room, don't shout out. But how great of a blessing is that? God could come to you and say, just obey me, walk with me, and you won't have to think about the weather ever. You're going to have plenty of water. Wow. Put me in the blessed category. That would be very, very good. And he talks about the fact there in verse 5, that your threshing uh, shall last until the time of the vintage and the vintage shall last until the time of the sowing. You, will, you, will not own, you, you won't finish eating what you harvested the year before before the new crop is coming in and pushing it out. So he's promising him a full belly. Now in the United States of America, we say, oh no, a full belly again? You know it's killing my diet and different things we 're so used to the abundance of food and i 'm not complaining about it i 'm thankful for that there is you know people are not starving in the United States of America and in much of the world that they aren 't there are in other parts of the world but um, the but we have to remember that this it ha- this is a very uni- unique time in human history um, for you to have the promise that God is going to supply you with water and that you are going to have your belly full every single day. That was a tremendous promise from, from God. And uh, we shouldn't uh, you know, sniff at it uh, even today. You shall eat your bread, end of verse 5, at the, uh, to the full and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none of you shall be made Afraid, So he said, I'll free you of fear. So a full belly and a peaceful life. You know, no fear of being attacked by your neighbors. All right, the riches continue. I will rid the land of evil beasts. And so no cats in uh, in that particular time. Okay, I know we do have cat lovers here. And that will all change in heaven. But in that... So there was protection. He promised him protection from evil beasts. In that day, the population of Israel was not as heavy as it is today. And so it would be, uh, when, when you had a lot of animals, it would kind of overflow the land. It would be very, very dangerous for you to travel uh, and, and be found caught out on a, a road somewhere and face to face with with evil beasts or wild beasts. And the sword shall not go through your land, so protection from their enemies, and you will chase your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. If they attack you, I'll give you victory over them. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. So I'll give you victory even in twenty to one odds and a hundred to one odds. And so here there's... This, I mean, you're talking about things. He's, he's removing all of the fears that we have in life. And he's just taking the same, you're not going to have to worry about any of these things. Just walk with me. And so, for I will look on you favorably, make you fruitful, and multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. And so here he's talking about blessing them with, with many, many children and uh, population increase there in the nation as they would uh, go into the land of, of Canaan. And in those days, unlike much of the Western world today, in those days a large family was considered to be a blessing. They were your security and they were considered to be a gift from the Lord and that should be our attitude toward, uh, toward children. And uh, uh, And so God considered that to be a blessing, to bless with, with many children. And you shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. You won't even be able to eat everything that came you know, the year before before you've got to clear it out and, and uh, get it, rid of it before the new one is coming, uh, 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 comes in. Again, more than enough food. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you i will walk among you and be your god and you shall be my people so the promise of his presence which is the greatest promise uh, of all and so he says i'll, I'll be i'll be sh- strong my presence will be strong Uh, with you and in your midst. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you to walk upright. And so he promises them that though they had been in bondage for God's purposes to go from being a family to becoming a nation in Egypt, that as they would now walk with him and obey him, they would not return to bondage, but they would walk free. And of course, obedience to God's word, uh, not only does it have the, the material benefits so often that, that uh, go with it in general, but there, are, um, there is also they keep us free from becoming enslaved to Egypt, and that's a picture of the world for us in the New Testament. It keeps us uh, from becoming a slave of sin and the things of the world. Then in verse 14, having laid out all of those blessings, he then uh, goes on and, and talks about what it is, that the blessings that or the, the cursings that would come into their life if they chose to disobey him. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments. And if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgment so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. So as faithful as he said he would be to bless them for obedience, he is saying, I'm a faithful God. I will be just as faithful to chasten and and discipline and judge you if you choose to deliberately disobey my word which the children of Israel would do um, uh, continually as a nation uh, in the Old Testament despite uh, the the warnings so he goes through now and starts to describe some of the consequences I will even appoint terror over you he said if you start to disobey me then there's going to be a terror that comes upon you do you realize and i think this is important disobedience to god's word and um, and i think we have to be careful here to this is the old covenant he's talking to the nation of of israel it has applications to us in terms of principle and the principle that it carries even in the new testament that it is the life that obeys god is is a blessed life and the the life that disobeys god is a life that comes under his judgment and under his his curse, even as a child of God, under his uh, discipline. but in the New Testament, here he talks about a lot of material kind of things. In the New Testament, there isn't the guarantee that if we are faithful and obedient to God, that um, our life won't be taken or that we'll never be sick. Or that will uh, never have a shortage of food at the end of the month, or something like that. So it's it's a little bit a little bit different on on things. But our, our promises are greater and they're richer. But God chooses to work in a way that's a little more multifaceted in the New Testament because He can allow certain things in to develop. Uh, godly character within within our lives. But in general as we look at the Bible, b- uh, obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads uh, to the opposite of that. But he talks here about uh, the disobedient. The first thing, he doesn't talk about the fact that there's not going to be rain and you're going to starve to death. The first great consequence of disobedience that he speaks of here is that a terror will fall on your life. You're going to live a life of fear and, 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 and uh, terror. That's the mental price of of disobedience. Way beyond dollars and cents and these things, I lose the confidence that comes with knowing I'm right with God. And, the, and, the, and then a fear creeps into my life and a terror creeps into my life because I know that my life isn't being protected by an obedient life as, as, as it should be. The Bible says, I was just reading it either this morning or or uh, yesterday as I was in the book of Isaiah. But it talks about there is no peace for the wicked. And there isn't any peace uh, for the wicked. And there's no peace for the disobedient uh, either to, to God's word. Sometimes it looks like on the outward, wow, they're getting away with murder and they're getting away with this. And, and it looks like there's no consequences. But we don't see what's going on way down inside of a person's life. And God makes sure, certainly for the child of God, that they are not going to enjoy a life of disobedience. And the first thing that comes is, is a terror over us. He said, spoke about wasting disease and fever shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. There are physical uh, consequences. There are physical diseases that come with disobeying. God's word and that obedience protects us from. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. And so God said, you're going to work hard in your fields, do all of that labor and all, but that your enemies are going to come in at the harvest time. They're going to steal it all uh, from you. And we think about Gideon in the Old Testament as the Midianites would come in every time at the harvest time and they would just strip away all of the the grain that the children of Israel had worked uh, for and uh, then take it back to Midian and it was because of Israel's disobedience at that time. He said um, in verse 17, I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies those who hate you shall rule over you so instead of a life of victory they would have a life of defeat now there's only one thing worse than being conquered by my enemies and that is being conquered by an enemy that isn't um, not only uh, isn't indifferent toward me or have a mild dislike for me but to be conquered by those who hate me obedience in our lives protects us from an enemy, the devil, the demonic realm, those that hate us would destroy us, even people that hate us and would destroy us uh, as as Christians. And that protection gets lifted off as, as we would disobey the Lord. And you shall flee when no one pursues you. It's a life of irrational Fear and after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Seven is the number of completion, and so God says, "Listen, if these things don't cause you to repent, I'll go ahead and I'll raise the ante." If you forgive the gambling expression on that, what would be a better one? We'll work on that. But he says, "The, the point is, is that uh, God is more powerful." then we are rebellious. And, and He is more powerful than we are stubborn. And God loves us enough not to let us win in our rebellion. So He says, Alright, these things happen to you. You're not willing to repent at this point in time. I've got a few other things that I can do. And, uh, and I know how to chase on my children and bring them back to me. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And so he's back to talking about the weather. And uh, he had promised them, if you obey, there'll be rain. He said, if you disobey, I'll make the heavens like iron. In other words, just like uh, an iron shield. It's just uh, uh, impenetrable in terms of rain. No rain coming down. He talks about the earth being like bronze. And uh, being coming so hard that uh, it's like it's like rock, and you're talking about a, a primitive time where their tools would be made of more primitive metals, and their plows and things wouldn't even be able to be able to break that kind of soil. If you've ever uh, if you live in a part of Modesto where everything is kind of really sandy in your yard and that kind of thing, that's great. Uh, we used to live in a house like that and then we move to another place and there is hard pan about eighteen inches thick hard pan about a foot right underneath the ground and uh, so i thought i was just going to go out and put a few plants in and be done you know blah 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 like this like i lived at the old place and just put it in and they grow and and then i just take the compliments for being this fabulous no, didn't do that quite like wasn't that good of a yard but um... hit that hard pan all right break out the digger you know, auger thing and break through in in order. So the ground can get very, very uh, hard. And God said, all right, you want to play hardball on this? I'll stop the rain. Now, he talks about doing that as a way of breaking their pride. And uh, probably there's no more quicker way to expose the um, uh, limitations of man uh, more quickly than through a drought because there is no amount of labor, no amount of hard work, no amount of anything that a person can do uh, to make up for a lack of rain. And so it was one of God's ways of getting the attention of of uh, his rebellious children and, by, and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its produce nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins and so you want to go harder on this I can go harder on this I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. No one would travel the roads because of the danger of being uh, eaten by a wild animal. Uh, And animals are wild, aren't they? This whole San Francisco Zoo thing, really weird, that whole deal. Never taunt a lion. I I assume uh, the news is coming out that they did taunt that lion, but it's kind of weird uh, to have been in that zoo uh, not too long ago with my wife and my daughters and their husbands and my grandchildren and to know uh, so you wonder, wow, how weird would it be for a lion to be out of its pen and roaming around out there. You know, it's, it's dangerous for me to read the news. I put myself in people's places. I do it in the Bible too, so that's okay, but man, that would just be Okay, the lion is out of its perimeter. This is not happening. This is not happening. I mean, m- imagine how horrifying that, that would be. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but you continue to walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. You think you're, you you're going to out stubborn me on this it's just not going to happen and praise the lord for that sometimes you know i get a chance to pray with with someone over some kind of a situation and someone is backslidden they're not walking with the lord or something like that and probably the prayer that i pray the most for a person in that situation is lord do whatever it takes for you to win in their life Now, when I'm praying with somebody, see, you reveal secrets sometimes during sermons. But I can't, I got the loved one standing right there, and I can't say, you know, Lord, beat them, bust them, that's our custom, you know, and just (laughs) wipe them out and, you know, give them the pox and let everything, and so how can you say that in a nice way? You just say, Lord, whatever you got to do for you to win in the situation. But. But uh, with all seriousness, there, there is the realization that when he wins, and he, he only does as much as he has to to get our attention. He could have just unleashed the whole thing on him all at once, but he doesn't do that. It's by degrees. He's trying to bring us to repentance. And so he's very measured in his discipline in our, our life. But uh, if whatever it takes for us to come back to him, the main thing is we come back to him. And uh, so the Lord says, "I can keep raising the level of these things, and uh, I have the ability and the love to do it. And I will bring a sword against you that you will, exec- that will execute the vengeance of the covenant when you are gathered together within your cities. I will send pestilence among you, and you will be delivered into the hand of the enemy." And so uh, they, the children of Israel are later going to rebel against God. Uh, the Babylonians are going to come against the southern kingdom of of Judah whenever the Assyrians would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel uh, many years before that but when these armies would come in uh, allowed by the Lord because of the disobedience of the children of Israel uh, everyone would leave the countryside of of course and they would then concentrate in the walled cities and think okay well we're safe from them here and God says no uh, because as you cluster and gather in those kind of groups, there's not going to be good water, there's not going to be good sanitation, disease is going to, to break out among you. And when I have cut off your supply of bread, so there is always famine associated with this, ten women shall break your, uh, bake your bread in one oven and they shall bring back your bread by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. So ten women Usually, just one woman would take all that she had in a time of plenty, all of the dough and everything, put it in, and one oven would supply then be needed to supply the bread for the family for that day, for them to be satisfied. He said, "You're going to be able to take ten women, and they're going to be. There's food is going to be so scarce they can all put their little muffin in there and and bake it, and it's it's not going to be enough to feed uh, anyone." He says, verse 27, And after this, if you do not obey Me, but walk contrary to Me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. So again, there's the escalation. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sin, and you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh... Of your daughters. And so this actually happened in their history during the Babylonian uh, uh, conquest of the southern kingdom of Judah. They ended up uh, coming into Jerusalem. The siege was so long, food became so scarce uh, that uh, people ate their children. And they ate the placentas, they ate the children that, that were, were born. And uh, uh, it, it's amazing what we're capable of if we walk away uh, from the Lord. And I mean, how stubborn can you be not to say, okay, we repent. And when we get into these um, uh, historical books a little bit later in the Old Testament, God was begging them through the prophets all the way to the day before Nebuchadnezzar knocks the wall down, if you repent, I will have mercy on you. I mean, right to the last minute. And, and they wouldn't uh, do it, not even for the sake of, of their children sin is I mean it it's a deceitful thing how there's just a certain place where it can grab a hold of our life and you lose all sense of reason uh, related to it and so uh, I will destroy verse thirty your high places. These were the the places where they were setting up all of their idols and worshiping them inside of of the cities and even out outside on the countryside. God said, when the, when these armies come in, I'll destroy your high places, cut down your incense uh, altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. And so, what would happen when these armies would come in against the children of Israel? when things were their most desperate, the armies are are breaking through the walls of the city, where would they go? They would run to where their idols were and they would begin to beg their idols to deliver them. And God is saying that if, if, if you will not repent of your idols and your false temples, then I will allow an army to come in and destroy them. If you will not destroy them in your own life, then I will allow something else to come in and destroy them. And their bodies, they would then be killed there and their bodies heaped at the sight of of their idols and all of it would be a picture of the powerlessness of their idols to save them when God would have saved them all along. Don't shout out. Anybody living in sin tonight and you haven't repented of your sin? You need to repent of your sin. And uh, it, it, this is serious business uh, to, to be a child of God, to proclaim and represent myself as a child of God, and, and not to repent and to walk close with God. It's a, it's a danger to our own lives. It's a danger to our families. It's a danger in all directions. And my soul, he said, shall abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell uh, the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. And so it happened. Uh, interesting when King Nebuchadnezzar, who was uh, the world-ruling emperor of, of the Babylonian uh, Empire, uh, because of the people's sin and their rebellion against God and even their rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire that God was using to chasten His people, their rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar was so strong that they forced Nebuchadnezzar to reconquer Israel three times. Conquered the first time and then had to reconquer it a second time and reconquered it a third time. By the time Nebuchadnezzar put his armies together again to go take Jerusalem one more time. This guy was mad. (laughs) He was upset about it. And so you can be sure that when they went into Israel and they ultimately conquered Jerusalem, they didn't leave much uh, uh, of, of the city left. They pretty thoroughly destroyed it to such a degree that even the enemies of Israel would walk in and say, Wow, what kind of a destruction is this upon a nation? All of it, as God said, would be the case if, if they would not uh, walk with Him and in the safety of, of obedience. He said, then, verse eight, uh, 34, The land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. So, again, God said, I want the land to have a Sabbath year rest. Every seven years, the seventh year, you allow that land to rest. They never allowed it to rest. They did that for 490 years. They owed God 70 years of rest in the land. They were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. God got the rest that He wanted for His land. You know, are going to... Pay me now, pay me later. You know, we can do this the easy way. We can do this the hard way. And, uh, you know, God is trying to uh, tell them on, on things. But you can't work God and, and, uh, and, and, and kind of try and make a fool of Him. And as for those, verse 36, of you who are left in the land, I will send uh, or, or left survive the invading armies, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. So as the children of Israel, those who survived the terrible um, military defeats and the famine and the disease and all these things, they would be then taken uh, captive into Babylon and uh, you can imagine how fearful that experience would be. You know, we've been... Uh, we've been Uh, humbled by God here we're in a foreign land how are they going to treat us and uh, so he said the sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee again here is the emotional price that we pay for disobedience to the Word of God he's been talking about the physical price that we pay here's the emotional price of being afraid of every single thing there's no confidence in our life when we're walking in deliberate disobedience Uh, to to the Word of God. And they shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. It's, again, an irrational fear. And they shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up and those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands also their fathers' iniquities which are with them they shall waste away. How depressing is this? He's telling them their history ahead of time because he knew they would diso- disobey uh, Him and all of this. So you look at this and you say, what, what sin could be worth all that? What sin could be worth missing all of those blessings? And then what sin could be so wonderful to us that we would not repent of it, even under the weight of that kind of judgment and chastisement, and and so he he, he is, he's he's warning them here of this. This is the way that it is. You can't fight against God and win. And he's emphasizing the importance of our choices in life, because they land and they put us on a path, on a path that puts us in some kind of a relationship with God, either an obedient relationship with Him or a disobedient relationship to Him. Well, I'm so glad that the chapter doesn't end with verse 39, but there is a but in verse 40, and the the buts of the Bible are very, very wonderful. Uh, Romaine, who used to be a... uh, is gone to be with the Lord now, Pastor Romaine, ministered with Pastor Chuck Smith so many years down in Southern California, Calvary Costa Mesa, And um, uh, he used to say, uh, when people would come in for counseling, he would listen to them and listen and listen to their problem and their situation, and And then he would listen for a particular word, and the word that he would listen for was the word "but." (laughs) Well, you know, yeah, I don't love my wife the way that I, Christ loves the church, and you know, and I don't really, and I this and not, and and then but, and then he's got his word, (laughs) and what the word "but" means in a conversation like that is forget. Everything I've just said, and now we're dealing with the real issue. Well, that can that but can be a negative thing, can also be a positive thing, and and so when we find ourselves on the wrong side of God in a life of disobedience, that word but that's a hope word. That infuses hope into uh, into our situation that there is the opportunity to get off of that path. But if Despite all of this, despite all of the rebellion, despite all of the disobedience and all of these things, but if, and if is a hope word also, they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they have walked also walk contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt. In other words, if a person, God says, if they come to me with no excuses, no blame shifting, it wasn't everybody else's fault, a person comes and says, I am in the bondage that I am in, I am, have the life surrounding me that I am living right now because of my own decisions and my own rebellion against God. God says, when a person comes to me in, in that, that kind of, of way, taking responsibility for their life and their decisions, notice that first word of verse 42, then, now that's a hope word also, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. I will remember the land. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Things can change in an instant with, as an act of our will of repenting, and repenting is a wonderful thing, by the way, when a person is in sin, to repent, to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in life that produces a a practical change of direction in in my life, that's repentance, and God will forgive us of our sins. Now, he talks here about, uh, for the children of Israel, if they would repent, God said, I will remember the covenant I made with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob I will remember the land God promised the land to Abraham Isaac and Jacob in the most one-sided covenant to be found in the whole Old Testament. There's only one more one-sided covenant in all of the Bible, and that is the covenant that we have with God, salvation based upon the blood of Jesus. It is completely based upon what He has done for us, and there's nothing we can add to that salvation. But the most one-sided covenant or agreement or contract kind of with God in the Old Testament was the one that God made with Abraham, and that is I will give you this land. It wasn't, I will give you this land if and, and uh, maybe and only if you and all. He gave the land to, to them. And the covenant was based upon God alone and not their obedience and their disobedience. There would be consequences for their sin, but he would, would not back away from that promise Because that was based solely on God. The land also shall be left empty by them. Verse 43, and will enjoy its sabbaths while it lies desolate. Without them, they will accept their guilt, because they despised my judgments, and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And so God says, I'm not going to give up on my people. I've promised the land to them, to the Jews, and they're going to they're going to pay they're they're going to pay a terrible price for their rebellion. Even after they receive my forgiveness, they're going to have to work through the consequences of their sin. But God is saying concerning the children of Israel here, they don't cease to be my people. And my promise in terms of the land being given to them, that doesn't change. In the same way as we're born again, and, uh, and, and all, if a person... Uh, being born again, then begins to live a life of disobedience to God. God comes in and chastens them for that and they confess their sin. They repent. That person may have to deal with the consequences of their sin for a while, but they're restored to relationship with God because the covenant with God, the personal relationship that I have with God, isn't based on on, uh, my doing. It's based upon my faith in Jesus Christ and I don't want to get any further into that uh, right now, but then you weren't asking me to, so you'll excuse the conversations in my head, or the guilt complex, whatever it is. Yet for all that, verse 44, yet for all that, all that disobedience, all that, 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 that. How how does God view uh, my sinful history when I turn back to Him? All that. <laughs> it's all that back. Yet for all that history, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. It's beautiful. It doesn't give up on us. There's a doctrine in the body of Christ today yeah, and I, I don't understand it, but it is, it is the predominant doctrine concerning Israel, and it's called replacement theology. The idea that God no longer has a plan for the children of Israel or the nation of Israel, but that when you read the Bible, every, all of the promises that are made to Israel, those are now transferred over to the church, and so they confuse the church and the nation of Israel in their theology. But when you read the Bible, the Bible is, is, is God looks at the end times of the last days. He sees Israel, the nation of Israel, as its own uh, self-identifying thing and the church as its own uh, specific thing and they're not confused issues. The Great Tribulation is called the, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. And, and so God is still, still has a plan for the nation of Israel. Jews must be saved the same way Gentiles are. But God still is going to work in that nation to open their eyes up to the fact that Jesus was and is their Messiah. And, and so people look and they say, God's done with the nation of Israel. You've got to read the book of Romans. God hasn't cast His people away. And uh, so verse 44, very important verse to realize that God is not done with the nation of Israel. Don't confuse the church and the nation of, of Israel. He still has work to do in and through both. But for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statues and judgments and laws which the Lord made between Himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation. What he's talking about here, now he heads into the whole subject of vows. So you could have... um, one of the things that people would do with, uh, with vows in those days is they would vow um, themselves to the Lord. Oh God, I make a vow to dedicate my life to you. Lord, I vow... Um, you know, this child to you and to your service. I vow my land to you. I vow my house to you. I, I vow my animal, this animal to you to be used for your your purposes and all. And so it was a way of dedicating something of value to the Lord and saying, this belongs to you. Um, but a lot of times... Uh, what a person would want to vow to God was of no real use to God in, 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 um, uh, in, in the exact thing that was being vowed. For instance, if a person, let's say I had th- three sons, and uh, I would say, okay, God, I'm going to vow my third son to you. Uh, God already had the Levites as a tribe who would do all of the work associated with the temple and the tabernacle. He didn't really need more labor. Uh, And and so uh, he could use them. He used Samuel when Hannah dedicated Samuel uh, to, to the Lord. But most often they didn't need it. So a person would take, and it was their way of doing a symbolic way of dedicating their children to God. So they would say, I dedicate my son to you, with the intention that they would then buy him back from that vow at 120%, or for a certain fee, he would buy them back. That money then would go into the temple to support the work of the temple, and that way the father could say, my children are dedicated to God, and then, and then the, uh, the, the temple and God's work would receive resources for them to do their work and so that's what this is all uh, kind of uh, about and so God never these are not vows that God required of people this was people where they were just saying God I love you so much I'm so thankful for you and all I want to vow and dedicate this to you Uh, but with the idea that they would then buy uh, buy back uh, with with a sum of money and the money would then go toward the Lord. So when a man consecrates by a vow certain persons, so that's the first form of vow that involves people to the Lord, then according to your valuation, if your valuation is a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, you dedicate this person to the Lord, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. It cost you 50 shekels to buy them back, and the 50 shekels would go toward the work of the Lord. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels, and uh, she was probably valued at less even within that age group, uh, which is kind of the prime of life, probably because in general, Uh, women are not as physically strong as as men and much of the work was very physical in those days. And if from five years old up to 20 years old, you you dedicate someone to the Lord, then to, to redeem them, your valuation for a male would be 20 shekels, for a female, 10 shekels. And if from a month old up to five years, wow, you can get rid of your month old, go get them when they're four, Body trained and everything? Wow. Spoken just like a, a terrible dad, huh? Isn't it just something? The mothers are aghast. What kind of a pastor is this? Give up the child. And I don't know. It just hit me right. But if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver, and for a female your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from sixty years old and above it is a male, then your valuation shall be fifty shekels, and for a woman... Uh, female, 10 shekels. But if the person that's dedicated is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present him before the priest and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed the priest shall value him. So here is a person, he makes a vow of his son to the things of the Lord. He's right, his heart is right in it, but he doesn't have 50 shekels. Uh, to pay to redeem then the Lord could look the, the priest could look at the specifics of that situation not to deny anyone the the privilege of vowing and, and, and dedicating things to the Lord and loved ones to the Lord then a, a value would be placed on them so no one would kind of be economically uh, put out of this kind of thing if it's an animal that, me, that men may bring as an offering to the Lord all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy he shall not substitute it or exchange it good for bad or bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be uh, holy. And so, uh, clean animals, firstborn of the clean animals, that belonged to God outright. So you couldn't say, God, I'm going to vow this, give this to you as a vow, and knock out my required offering and do a, a volunteer offering at the same time. Uh, a clean animal that was was god 's and and you you couldn 't uh, there 's no negotiation on that, but if he had a, an unclean animal so let 's say here 's a guy over here he doesn 't raise sheep, he raises mules, but he 's a Jewish man and he wants to uh, he doesn 't have any sheep to offer to the Lord in terms of this kind of a vow, he wants to offer a donkey to the Lord, but a donkey 's no good for sacrifice, so he would offer the donkey and then he would pay a, a price to receive that donkey back and again uh, he would be saying thank you to the Lord for blessing me with all of these animals and then money would still go to the work of the Lord if it's an unclean animal which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord then he shall present the animal before the Lord and the priest shall set a value for it whether it's good or bad as you the priest value it so it shall be but if he wants it all to redeem it he must add one-fifth to your valuation. So if you wanted to redeem your unclean animal back, the priest would determine the value of it plus 20% in order to redeem it back. And if a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, Lord, I want my house to be yours and dedicated to you with the idea of redeeming it back, uh, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. And he, if he who dedicated it, wants to redeem his house back, then he must add one-fifth of the money to the valuation of it, and it shall be his. So for one 120%, he could redeem it back. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field for his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it, a homer of... Barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of jubilee according to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money, do him according to the years that remain until the year of jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. So the value of a field was determined by two things. Number one, the value of the crop that was being raised uh, in the field. And number two, by the number of years until the year of Jubilee, when when the land would return back to the original owner. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man... It shall not be redeemed anymore, but the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. So here's a guy trying to pull a fast one on God. He says, God, you know, I've I've given this field to God. I I dedicate it to God. And then over here on the side, he sells it to somebody else. And God says, All right, if you're going to do that kind of thing when the year of Jubilee comes around, it doesn't go back to you. It belongs to me. You can't cheat God. <laughs> That's something. Oh, boy, I wonder if I'll work this thing over here. And God's just watching the whole thing like this, you know. I mean, like we're going to pull a fast one on him. Wait, wait a second. What what'd you do to me? <laughs> what? I wasn't looking. Yeah, he's looking. He's looking all the time. And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field, which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of jubilee, and he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought to the one who owned the land as a possession, and all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, twenty geras to the shekel. But of the firstborn of the animals, so here he talks about three things that you couldn't dedicate to the Lord because they already belong to God. So think think about the fact that God has to say that to us, even to his people. Uh, You know, don't be giving me something that's already mine and making a big deal out of it. So he he tells them this. He knows who, who he's working with in us. But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, all firstborn of the animals were to be given to the Lord. No man shall dedicate, whether it is an ox or a sheep, It is the Lord's, and if it's an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation, and shall add one fifth to it. If it is not, or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. So, no dedicating something to God when it was the firstborn that already belonged to God. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote. Uh, to the Lord of all that he has both man and beast or the field of his possession shall be sold or redeemed everything, every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord so if a prophet or a priest stood up and said all of this belongs to God then we, then they weren't free to take that and then try and offer it to God classic example in the Old Testament is the spoils of Jericho Joshua stood up before the nation of Israel and said, the spoils, the first fruits, the conquering of the promised land, the spoils of Jericho, that belongs to God. Do not try and take any of that and then offer it back to God. Achan attempted to take something that belonged to God and it ended up costing uh, his life. So they couldn't offer to God what was already his by decree through the prophets or through the priests. Also, you couldn't redeem someone who had committed a capital crime and then offered money to get them out from under the death sentence. The law was not uh, to be meted out on the basis of who had enough money to to do that kind of thing. No person under the ban uh, who may become doomed to destruction, capital punishment, among men shall be redeemed but shall surely be put To death, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. So it's kind of like if you say, All right, Lord, I want to hold back the tenth of the tithe, and I want to get that to you a little bit later on things. God said, All right, but it's 120% on it. Uh, if you're going to do that. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock... Of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. This is, it's really sad. It's in me because I'm a descendant of Adam and Eve. And I know it's in you too, probably a little bit more even. But basically what he's saying here, passing under the rod is, they would just have kind of like a, uh, you know, two railings maybe, or something like that. The guy would bring his his whole flock of sheep in, and every tenth one belonged to the Lord. So he would just kind of he was just supposed to run his flock through there randomly. He couldn't say, okay, these are the nine good ones. Give me that, you know, runt over there. Put it at number ten, and just get rid of the worst to the Lord. The Lord says, if you if you start to play that game, then he says, I get the one you tried to, uh, you know. Give me, and then I get one of the other ones too. It just, pe- it's funny how people work their offerings to the Lord. You notice, know, okay, some kind of, this thing, in God's look and God's looking and saying, "That's, that's disrespectful toward me on, on things." So He has to set these laws down to make sure it's not, the, it's not about the sheep. It's about respect for God. And He tells them, "Don't be doing this to me." These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai the worship team would come forward. That would be great. Enjoy communion this evening.